Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So the first practice question we have tonight is one of my favorite topics, nutrition support. So we have a patient requires 1,800 calories and is restricted to 1.5 liters of fluid. The enteral formula selected for this patient provides 1,500 calories. We It's going to give 55 grams of protein and then 770 milliliters of free water per liter. The patient would like to do bolus feed. How many milliliters of a formula should each bolus be if the patient receives boluses Q6 hours? So the first thing that I'm thinking here is, okay, this is a tube feeding question. And what am I trying to get to? I'm trying to get to milliliters per bolus if my patient is getting boluses Q6 hours. So if this is new vocab for you, Q6 hours or Q4 hours, it's new saying every blank hours. So Q6 hours would be four times a day. Something like Q4 hours would be six times a day. So what I'm looking for is how many milliliters should I provide per bolus if I'm going to be giving four boluses per day. And I want to start knowing what my question is asking me because especially on these math ones, it's going to get confusing. So I need to next find out what's my volume a formula. And I look back at the question, I see the calorie needs, I see, you know, the formula is given, and we're used to getting these questions where it's saying they're giving longevity 1.5 or the concentration that it would be. And if we had the concentration, we could follow our tube feeding steps of taking our calorie needs and dividing it by our concentration. But we do not very clearly have our calorie needs. So we need to make sure we're looking back at that second sentence, right? Saying the enteral formula selected for this patient provides, right, 1,500 calories, 55 grams of protein, 770 milliliters of free water per liter. So if I'm paying attention, I'm going to realize that in one liter, right, 1,000 milliliters, I'm going to be giving 1,500 calories. So if I'm trying to kind of figure out the concentration and I know one liter provides 1,500 calories and I divide that by my 1,000 milliliters because, right, this is a liter, I'm getting 1.5 calories per milliliter. And if you've taken any of my math classes, you guys know I love to say keep your units tight and get it right. So doing that's going to allow us to see how are we getting calories per milliliter by taking the calories in the formula divided by the milliliters in the liter. So now I have 55, I, I did that math, and I know I have 1.5 calories per milliliter. So next, I'm looking to find the volume that I need. So following my tube feeding steps, if I have the calorie needs, so 1,800 calories, and again, keep your units tight, get it right, 
I'm going to do 1,800 calories divided by my calories per milliliter. Calories are going to cancel out, and you're going to be left with milliliters. So we do 1,800 divided by 1,500, and this is telling me I need, I'm going to be needing 1.2 liters of that formula. Because what I'm thinking is, okay, well, how many liters am I going to need? Right, if each liter provides 1,500, you could have also done 1,800 divided by 1.5, and that's going to give you 1,200 milliliters. So same answer, there's ones in liters, ones in milliliters, just depends what you want to do with that. So I'm saying I need to provide 1,200 milliliters of tube feeding formula. And back to my question that I said, already identified, what am I asking here? And I said, I'm looking for the milliliters per bolus if I'm giving four boluses a day. So with boluses, I'm just giving a volume in a syringe. So instead of finding a rate, I want to take the tube feed volume I need, divide by the number of boluses per day, and that's where I'm getting 300 milliliters. So the answer to this question of how many milliliters of formula should each bolus provide if we're doing a Q6 would be 300 milliliters a day, would get us up to that goal volume. So definitely a great question that brings in tube feed, brings in bolus, brings in some math. And this type of question could definitely be on the exam multiple choice because what they would give you is they would give you just different boluses amounts and you'd have to pick. And I guarantee you they're going to be doing one for if you're giving it six times a day in case you read, um, in case you read the question wrong. Next question we have is what is the difference between a climactic and a non-climactic fruit? And so this is coming from domain one with our food science section. Climactic fruit, I like to think that it's still, after you take it off the tree, it's still getting to its climax, kind of like that high point of, you know, its little hike up to ripeness. So a climactic fruit is something that you're going to pick and you're still going to have it ripen. Like this is going to be something you're kind of like squeezing, like think like a peach, right? Where you're kind of squeezing it and going, hmm, is this ripe yet? And it's going to get riper the longer that it's on the counter. Versus a non-climactic fruit, think non-climactic, mm, not that exciting. This would be something that you don't have ripen more after you pick it. So, right, like an orange, an apple, a grape, right? I'm not going, oh, are those grapes ripe? ripe? Or are those apples ripe? No, they're a non-climactic fruit that we're going to be seeing there. Okay, next question I put up, I said, why are MCTs used for patients with pancreatitis and SBS, which is short bowel syndrome? I said, compare the metabolism of medium-chain triglycerides to long-chain triglycerides. And I put this question up because for both my signature course students and my monthly group students, one of the first homework assignments they hit is a fat metabolism worksheet, where we're kind of diagramming out the different steps of fat metabolism. And fat metabolism, unlike protein or carbohydrate, it's not necessarily one that makes sense because it's not just going, okay, add enzymes, get smaller and smaller. With fat metabolism, it's tricky because it has a whole nother route to go. And that's why when you have patients with, you know, pancreatitis or short bowel syndrome where you're having an aspect of malabsorption, especially of fats, why you're going to see things like steatorrhea versus we don't have like a name for you know, like extra glucose in the feces too. So 
being able to understand and compare them, this is going to help you understand just any issue with fat metabolism, even on the biochem level, much better. So the reason why we give our patients MCTs who are having some sort of fat malabsorption is because usually these patients, like if they have pancreatitis or like cystic fibrosis, they don't have those pancreatic enzymes to help break down and emulsify our fats. And also, like someone with short bowel syndrome, they might not have pancreatic insufficiency, but what they will have is they're just not having enough kind of runway for things to actually mix, so they're coming out really quick. So if we give someone MCT oils, the benefit is that these fats are, quote-unquote, water-soluble because they're so short, and they do not require our enzymes or bile to be fully absorbed. So it's taking a shorter route. So with MCTs, they're able to go through the enterocytes, right? Those are the cells on the lining of the GI tract and go directly into the blood. Super easy, super quick. First, for regular fats or long chain triglycerides, they have to go through a whole crazy long path. So if you're missing a piece of this puzzle, you're gonna fat malabsorb. So with our long chain fats, they definitely need all the bile aisles, the lipase that they can get. The bile and lipase are going to break it down and emulsify our fat and then repackage them into my cells. So I like to think my cells start the mission. They are these repackaged fats that go into the enterocyte. Once in the enterocyte, we're going to go through our Golgi bodies. Those fats are going to go into then making triglycerides, which are then repackaged into chylomicrons. And I like to think chylomicrons complete the mission. They leave the enterocyte and they go to the lymph. And our lymph is like our super highway of our fat. I feel like most people know lymph from like seeing people on like TikTok and Instagram being like, I'm going to give myself a lymphatic massage. So yep, same thing, but we're thinking about it for fat. And then it goes from the lymph into the blood. So it's a really, really long path for those longer chain triglycerides. So if you have someone with pancreatitis or short bowel syndrome, this is a lot of steps and they're missing a lot of puzzle pieces. So instead of having that fat break down and get into the micelles and get into the enterocyte, it's going to stay in the GI tract. And when you're doing that, that's going to be what's causing you to fat, to be fat malabsorbing there too. So you want to make sure you understand why we're giving different things because what is happening on a, a digestion level, what's happening on a biochemical level, what's happening, you know, on just how do their stools look too. All of those different things are kind of warping, and giving me warping into one and kind of contributing to that too. All right, so next question we have on here is what is grass? So what is grass? So grass is generally recognized as safe what you want to be thinking would generally recognize as safe is the fact that this is the FDA kind of grandfathering in supplements, not supplements, sorry, additives. Because before, you know, the 60s, a lot of stuff was not regulated. I mean, even up until the 90s is when DESHA, the Supplements Act, got passed. So a little bit of the wild, wild west. And as food was becoming more processed, the FDA thought, you know, Maybe we should start approving things that are going in the food. But there's foods that have been 
in the, you know, food additives that have been in the foods for so long. So what Graf said is things that have, and by things I mean additives, additives that have been in foods for a while are going to be considered grass, generally recognized as safe, meaning you don't have to prove to me that this is safe because people have been eating it for a while and seems fine. But any new additives, or if you're doing an old additive but using it for a new purpose, you need to prove that it is safe. So grass, think that she is grandfathered in, um, so generally recognized as safe is going to be helping to regulate our food additives. Next question, a little bit of a fill-in-the-blank action. I said, you received a consult for a patient who had a severe stroke and, a patient, and the patient will not be able to swallow normally for months. The patient otherwise has a norm, normally functioning GI tract. And what would be the best long-term access for this patient? And so this one, a lot of you guys got it right, would be enteral nutrition because GI tract is working. But we would also want to make sure that we're doing a PEG over an NG tube because a PEG is going to be for that longer term access. The NG tube or an NJ tube can really only be in your nose for about four to six weeks. And the big reason for that is because your nose or sometimes you'll hear called your nares is going to really deteriorate if there's a tube in there for a long time. So if you have a patient who you know is going to need tube feeds for a while, a lot of the time, like in my head and neck cancer patients, will just automatically go to do a PEG if we know they're going to need it long term. And remember, a PEG, you can see it also called a G-tube. The difference between a G-tube and a PEG is that a PEG is a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy. And so they're going in with a scope and kind of bring down the tube with it and you're kind of, kind of popping it out from the inside out. So it's not a surgery, it's a procedure. Technically, you wouldn't need like, you know, full body anesthesia for it. Versus a G-tube, it's going to have the same result. It's putting in the same tube. But what you're thinking there is they're going from the outside in. So this is a surgery, you'd go under general anesthesia, and they're cutting from the outside, then putting the tube. So if you're having a patient who's having like an obstruction of the esophagus, you might see them get a G-tube just because they can't get access with the scope. So the next question I put up, I also put with a funny meme that was, it says Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and then it crosses out Maslow's, and it says my, and the bottom one, right, which is our physiological needs, is replaced with iced coffee, and then we have everything else is in order, right? Safety needs, love and belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. And I wrote in my question here, besides Maslow, what is one of the other theories we see on the exam? And I said, give the definition that helps you understand it the most. And this is how I teach my students because one thing I notice, especially in domain three, where there's a lot of vocab, is we study it, we write down the definition from our study material, and we're not taking the time to go, do I understand that? Do I fully, you know, understand it in the way Dana understands things, right, which is a different way than you understand things. And when you look at the vocab and you try to kind of put an example on your life, or if you take any of my classes, you'll hear me just use examples from my life and my business all the time in the management vocab, you're going to remember it, right? So 
when you're defining things, try to put it in terms you understand. So I'm going to share with you guys some of the ones people commented. So one of the most common management theories that we remember is going to be Maslow's, right? Because that's like the one, right? The pyramid, climbing to the top. You have to have those base needs before you can become your best self. So if I'm thinking of my example of this, I think about when I started working as a brand new dietitian. I was working smack dab in the start of COVID, zero out of 10. But so when I'm thinking about my Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, I have the bottom, which was like my physiological needs. Like, did I have somewhere to sleep at night? Did I have food? Yes. But then I think about my safety needs and my safety needs in COVID were that I needed an N95 mask. I needed protection, a lot of which I couldn't get right away. And so because I don't have that second layer of needs, I could never be the best dietitian I could in those circumstances because I had to have those base needs filled before I can kind of have those other steps, the love and belonging, the esteem, the self-actualization. And one of my students, I remember she, when we were tutoring on this, she was like, I feel like the self-actualization is like your goddess mode. And I'm like, exactly. That's when you're able to live your best self, right? You guys, right, might be in a place where you're like, oh, I don't feel like I can be my best self because I haven't passed through this exam, right? But once you get past that, you're going to more easily be able to get there too. And so some other examples of one students gave and kind of how they remembered this, them is we had one student who said um, how I remember Herzberg's two-factor theory is that I think H is for hygiene and environment. And that's a great way to think about it. With Herzberg two-factor theory, very similar to Maslow's, but I like to think that it's like almost like a little stair step where instead of a pyramid, we're having a stair step. That first step, right, we can think of this student's example, Herzberg H hygiene, is our hygiene or also known as our maintenance factors. And so here we're saying, I just have to have these base needs. You know, and this is not necessarily things in order, but it's things we see from Maslow, right? So like salary, policies, supervision, you know, equipment, all the base things I need. I have to have that solid first building block before I can get to the second step. And the second step is going to be our motivators. So what Herzberg is saying is I have to make sure I have that first step before I can get those, be motivated by other things that aren't kind of like my more basic needs. So my example that I like to think of with this and a lot of these examples are from work, of course. But so when I first was starting in COVID, no, actually probably like a year in, we still hadn't gotten an 85 mask. It was insane. But the hospital was like, no, 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 you guys, you don't get any of these masks. You know, we can't have you guys work remote. We can't really social distance you. But you know what we are going to get you? We're going to get you these really nice Patagonia jackets. And they were nice. I look super cute in it. I love it. But... They weren't applying Herzberg's two-factor theory because what happened was everyone in the hospital got the jackets, but they're, you know, are still like, well, but we also still don't have all these things. So it didn't, you know, kind of act like a band-aid for the problems because they skipped over that first step. Had they given us the things we needed and then giving us a jacket, would have been great, right? But they kind of stepped over that one. Another example a student gave in the comments is she said with McGregor, I like to think 
theory X is negative work and theory Y is yes for positive work. And that's definitely kind of helpful to kind of separate them. With McGregor, what we're thinking here is this should be theory X and Y in your brain. And remember with the management theories, keep the names and like the fun names together, right? So when I'm thinking McGregor, think theory X and Y. So on one side of McGregor, we have theory X. And so like the student said, she thinks, I think theory X, negative work. I always think when I think theory X, I think of like crossing an X with my arms and being like, no, 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 no. So with this, it's not necessarily just negative work, but if it helps you to think like negative, go with that. But you want to think about that X is like the manager saying no. So this is the manager who's very authoritarian. They're going to take a lot of control because a big thing is that they believe their employees don't like to work. So this is the manager who's like clock in, clock out, cameras on, follow this policy. Like you don't really get a choice as their employee. They're telling you what to do all the time. And then with theory Y, it's the opposite. So like our student said here, like I like to think yes. And I also like to think with theory Y, this is why I like to work at my job. Because with theory Y, the management is more participative. They think you like to work. So they're like, okay, perfect. You know, we don't need to be on top of you. We won't be micromanaging you. So I like to think this is why I like my job in the oncology clinic because my boss is more theory Y where she's like, Dana loves her patients. She's going to be getting her work done, right? So, you know, we're not going to need to, you know, really micromanage her. So that's more of our theory why there too. So lots of vocab with the management. Definitely check out the management bundle on my website if that's a tricky area for you. But that's how I want you guys kind of going through. Think of a story. Think of an example. Okay. The next question I said is, I said, have you guys ever heard of a bow? So it's B O and then link L I N K. So bow link cap for tube feeding. And I said, what type of tube feeding regimen would this provide? So if you didn't see the picture that I posted on Facebook about this, or you're not on the Facebook page, just take a pause of the podcast to just and give it a little Google bow link cap for tube feeding. And so what it is, is it's basically one end of the tube feeding tube has a screw top. So you can screw that onto, um, let's see, oh, I do have tube feeding in my desk. For those of you guys on the podcast, I just brought up some tube feeding. So think about like a, a bottle. So on a tube feeding bottle, like a water bottle, there's the screw top. And normally when my patients bolus feed, what they have to do is they have to undo the screw top. They're going to pour the tube feeding into the syringe. Then they put the tube, the tube feeding down and syringe it into their tube. So it's like multiple steps. And what this cap does is, like I said, so you'd unscrew the top of the tube feeding. One end of this new tube feeding tube is going to have a spiral cap. So you can put that right on the tube feeding. And then it just connects directly into your tube. So the really nice thing with this is instead of having to kind of measure it in the syringe and then put in the syringe and then put it on, you can just connect one end to you one into the tube feeding and flip up the tube feeding and just bolus feed yourself that way. So a big pro of this is that you wouldn't need that syringe, but it's only going to work if your patients are giving themselves like a full can because it's going to be hard to measure 
anything else. So, but it's a good option, especially for my patients who just want to simplify their tube feeding regimen. And it's like super easy, like, oh, five cans or four cans. Um, but it's definitely a newer thing. I mean, I just learned about it last week when I had a meeting. And so we just ordered some for the clinic to kind of see how they work. But that type of tube feeding would still be considered bolus because I'm giving a large volume at once. So the bolus feeding, like we said, is with a syringe. That's what we kind of talked about um, talked about in that first math question at the top of the class. Okay, and then our last question we have here is the least accurate method for assessing energy requirements and include why. So we have direct calorimetry, food intake records, indirect calorimetry, and double labeled water. And so I have had a lot of got you guys on Facebook saying, I don't know what the doubly labeled water is, but I don't know if that's the answer or not. And so this is a perfect question where if you're going through questions, and even if you're like, oh, I know the answer and it's not that, but you can't tell me what it is, take a pause and look it up. Because looking it up is going to help you understand what it is. So that way, when you see it as an answer option, you're able to go, nope, not that. So doubly labeled water, if you haven't heard of this, it's not surprising because it's not really done that much anymore. Doesn't mean the exam won't ask about it for God knows why. But so with doubly labeled water, you're drinking like radio tagged water. And so you're drinking a certain amount and they know how many of these like tagged water molecules are in there. And then they measure how many are still in you. And it helps to kind of give a measure of your energy expenditure. So it is actually very accurate, but very expensive. And who really wants to drink like radio tagged water? Not a lot of people. So this would actually be a great option. Just like indirect and direct calorimetry, those are both going to measure exactly how many calories you're burning. The difference is that direct would be have to be like in a room, a chamber. So it's getting like every single ounce of what you're doing. So you'd be like in a specialized room, which also makes it really expensive. You could walk around. They, so they could do like multiple days of readings on you. Versus indirect calorimetry, you're just going like under a hood and it's like measuring for like 30 minutes too. So a little bit less accurate than direct, but it would still, it would still be like a very precise measurement of what you're doing too. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes, as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.